0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bites of History with Irene Walton. I'm your host, Irene Walton. Have you ever wondered how it made it to your table? Have you ever wondered how it made it to your shelf? If you love food, then this is the show for you. Bites of History with Irene. Thank you to Elizabeth M. in Wisconsin for sponsoring this episode. She sent me a couple bucks on Venmo to go get a coffee, and it was very sweet. So she is what powered this episode, which is the history of Jell-O in America. You guys, I had so much fun researching this. I learned so much that I didn't know about Jell-O, so I hope I can share that with you today. Big thank you to SeriousEats.com, What'sCookingAmerica.com, State.NJ.US, and BusinessInsider.com. Those are my sources for this episode. And just a quick reminder, um, mostly to Yellow Jacket or whoever it was that made a comment about how I was not a, you know, board certified historian. I am i couldn't be less, my friend. <laughs> I am just doing little bits of internet research and throwing it all together because that's what I find interesting. So please, you know, feel free to look more into jello molds for yourself if I if am not a reliable enough source, which that, I'm probably not. Alrighty, my friends, let's dive in. We are going to talk about this wonderful jiggly joy that is Jell-O. I will be honest with you, up until now, all that I knew Jell-O as was Nina Christie's mom bringing in Jell-O jigglers, which, let's be honest, is just (laughs) Jell-O made that's cut out with cookie cutters, but we went wild for those little star-shaped masterpieces. I loved those things. Shout out Nina Christie and Nina Christie's mom what a joy they were. But I figure let's dive into the history of Jell-O because it goes much further back than Mrs. Jones second grade class. Let's pop in our little time machine and head over to medieval Europe where the process to render collagen from the bones and then cleaning out all of the gunk from it was a days long process. Now I fear that I may have ruined something for you if you did not know. Jello is just animal bones, so if you've been a gummy worm eating vegetarian, you might have to uh, restart that that clock of when your start date was. <laughs> now I know that this sounds gross, and it is, but you know the next time you have something good that has gelatin in it, you're not going to remember what I just told you. So it doesn't really matter either way. Now going back to how this was a days long process, it took so much intensity, so much focus, so much hands on energy and a lot of flannel bags to get this wobbly component that we're so familiar with now that we know as gelatin. Now, because it took so long, this was a sign that someone was financially way up there. They had the budget to have kitchen staff and cleaning staff. They were not making this jello themselves. They had people making it for them because it took so long. Now, this is a symbol of wealth and excess of time and money and patience. And it all crossed over when the Europeans colonized America. And this mentality of it being a very, like, elite product continued up until the mid-1800s and the Industrial Revolution. The jello I'm talking about that these elite Europeans and elite colonizers did have was mostly aspic, which is the same texture that we're thinking of, but without the sweetness, without the sugar, So these were really big, ornate dinner pieces that were put on the table to be like, look how rich we are. We have meat floating in goo. And everyone was like, oh, my God. So (laughs) which I can only imagine how those tasted. Um, But it's definitely not like the jello taste that we are used to. We get closer to that taste in 1845 when Peter Cooper of New Jersey discovers instant powdered gelatin, which only needs hot water to activate it. This is what we think of unflavored gelatin now, which is, of course, disgusting. You might be thinking, (laughs) like I sure was, hey, Irene, how did Jell-O go from being this like 27, 30, 40-hour labor-intensive process to an instant powder? Um, Now, quite literally, nobody is really certain of how this happened, except for uh, basically saying like... Peter Cooper kind of tinkered around in the glue factory that he purchased for quite some time. And then there was powdered gelatin. There you go. (laughs) Thank you for listening. (laughs) So nobody's completely sure, but it was, uh, you know, we're just going to chalk it up to a culinary miracle. Now, Peter Cooper's gelatin was not doing great. Some cooks bought it from him. You know, some kitchen staff would buy it from him, but it wasn't really doing well outside of that demographic. But keep in mind, we're in the late 1800s, and this was a time of radical change in all industries, food very much included in that. And we've learned that in some of our other episodes. And Cooper's Jell-O was no different. With this industrial change, he marketed his Jell-O and added little recipes into the packaging, which is cute, to give ideas to home cooks. But in 1895, after years of it not being a major success, Cooper sold the patent to Pearl Waite, a cough syrup manufacturer, for $450. That would be $11,000 today. And his wife, Pearl's wife, um, changed the name from Peter Cooper's gelatin to the much cuter Jell-O that we know today. So shout out, you know, Mrs. Waite. The cough syrup business, however, was not treating them too well. It, you know, we're all trying our best. <laughs> and so were they. So they poured their hearts and bags of sugar into Jell-O and started to add fruit syrups and flavorings to the powder. But ultimately, it still didn't do too great. And they sold the patent that they had bought from Cooper to their neighbor, orator Francis Woodward, for the same $450. So they made no money on this. However, a year before this happened, Charles and Rose Knox were also getting into the bouncy business of gelatin and created these quick and easy sheets and still, again, nobody is completely certain of how they got to this point either. But it happened. And this allowed for easier use in the home. So what Charles did that was different from Cooper and different from the weights was he hired salesmen to go door-to-door and sell the products. And in 1896, Rose Knox developed a whole cookbook to accompany the product called Dainty Desserts, (laughs) which very much uh, lended itself to the purchase from females and the women of the household. So I feel like when I said females, I sounded like a mean, misogynistic gamer. I just meant like, of the time... Women were the ones buying this cookbook. (laughs) Now, during this time, Woodward, who had purchased Cooper's patent from the Waite family, was having trouble selling the product also, getting to a point where he was going to sell all of the rights to one of his employees for $35. So this patent's getting passed around, passed around. However, everything started to change when he introduced hot salesmen in horse-drawn carriages to go out and give free samples. Business started to uh, giddy up, as it were. Uh, (laughs) It's something that I'm seeing is like, no matter where we go in history, just like in our grocery store episode, part one, we have hot people needing to sell things. So models have always been gainfully employed. (laughs) It's just crazy. This sales tactic is really working out for Woodward. And in the early 1900s, we are seeing the explosion of Jell-O advertising on billboards and magazines and in the millions of Jell-O recipe books that were distributed to households. These recipe books had illustrations from Norman Rockwell, Mr. American Illustrator himself. This is something I do want to do a separate episode about, which is like branded cookbooks. They would give these cookbooks to the women of the house who were kind you know, kind of in charge of feeding everyone so that they could really push their brand and be like, you can use Jell-O in breakfast and lunch and dinner, and here's how. So this was great for them, and Woodward was very aware that this was great for them, and he really capitalized on it. And in 1904, we are also introduced to the Jell-O girl. Now, as much as I would like that to be my nickname... It is not. This was our four-year-old who was named Elizabeth, and she was the daughter of one of the advertising executives for Jell-O. In these images of the Jell-O girl, she would hold a little tea kettle and a package of Jell-O with the slogan saying, Jell-O, you can't be a kid without it. And she was plastered all over these marketing materials. This also imparted a sense of like innocence and childhood wonder that came with Jell-O because I will tell you what, Something about just like slurping down some Jell-O really is one of life's great joys. So the Jell-O girl was, you know, coming around at a time where we needed that. We needed a little joy. So let's zoom forward to 1923, where Woodward, who is the owner of the Cooper gelatin patent that got passed around a couple times, he is also the president of Woodward's Genesee Pure Food Company. Jell-O is doing so well that he rebrands it to the Jell-O company. And after putting out a cereal under this same company title, this rebrand evolves into the General Foods Corporation, which is now Kraft slash General Foods. So this is like the invention of Kraft as well, which we're going to do a whole other episode on Kraft. I actually think it's going to be our next episode. So keep a lookout for that. But it's just crazy to me to see where all of these brands that we are so wildly familiar with come from. And Jell is one of them. And in the 1920s, it's becoming more and more popular amongst housewives and just in the domestic zeitgeist in general. Now, World War One had introduced the rationing of sugar, which Jell-O is primarily made out of. But once the sugar rationing was lifted, Jell-O sales soared again. So that's why in the 20s, post you know 1918 when World War One ended, let's not pretend like I knew that. I literally just googled it. Um, that's why that's why in the 20s, Jell-O starts to soar again, um, and it's doing so well jello is absolutely crushing the market and in 1934 general Foods signs jack benny that jack benny to be the official voice for the radio commercials of jello of which jello was actually the pioneer of using the radio to create commercials and have like a distinct voice so they were one of the first ones to do that which is so interesting during the depression in the 30s, two major things were happening. Housewives were trying to stretch every possible ingredient that they had because it was the depression, unfortunately. And also, lime jello was introduced. And boy oh boy, was it the craze. <laughs> cookbooks were created just around lime jello, not just not like the cookbooks we just talked about that were just like, use jello for everything. Just lime jello cookbooks were were introduced. There were tips and tricks in it that allowed it to be one of the more savory side dishes, which included adding vinegar to sort of cut some of that sweetness. A little side fact is in the 1960s the jello mold increased in popularity so much that they actually started to create savory flavors of gelatin like Italian seasoning and all these other ones. They didn't last too long, but they did exist. Now we're really into this like jello mold, jello, jello, jello. And most of the time in this era, women were the makers of food in the household. And jello salads were being considered a very feminine food because they were dainty and they kept everything together. So if you were throwing salad on a plate, it's not flying all over the place you have a nice (laughs) slice of salad because women aren't messy and we don't ever spill. And that's an important part of being a woman. (laughs) At only 10 cents a box, this versatile side and dessert allowed for women of the Depression to feel like they were maybe a higher social status than they were because at this time, Jell-O still was, you know, pretty new. And it was something that like, had originally had this very elite status. It made the women who were trying to provide for their family feel like they were doing something really good, which you cannot put a price on the way you make somebody feel. That is huge. One of the slogans that I got a kick out of just going through some of these old ads was, you know how you would like say, what's for dinner? Uh, It would say, Jell-O, what's for salad? (laughs) (laughs) Which is so funny. So we're zooming forward to World War II, which was, of course, in the year 1939 to 1945. I knew that, of course. Come on. And the war was huge in the production of instant foods, processed foods, and they were sending food to the troops. And these companies got in such a rhythm that they figured, if America's going to eat it, why would we stop making it? (laughs) Did it taste good? Of course not. But were people so traumatized by the depression that the low price tag and relatively okay taste of these foods was pretty enticing? It sure was. So we're entering World War II, which is helping us come out of the depression because there's so much industry and so much production. And we're seeing women have to do more work in the house because a lot of their husbands are shipped off overseas. And so they're working more in the house. They're working more outside the house than ever before. And it is making it increasingly hard to feed their families like a nice home cooked meal. I'll tell you what, this is a whole episode in and of itself. But just to scratch the surface of what I'm trying to express is that like women of this era were battling with providing food for their family, also not having nearly as much time as they used to. So while instant food seemed like it would be this really incredible thing for the housewife, it wasn't. Because a woman who made something from a box or a can was now a bad wife, a lazy mom, a bag of shit. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean. Whereas a woman who made something from a box but added an egg to it or mixed two cans together was now making a meal. Think boxed cakes, canned soups, instant coffees. Adding labor back in to these instant foods was part of the process of why people really clung to it and felt like oh i've i've mixed two things together now i have had a part in the food making process which uh, i'm very excited for that episode because then we talk all about box cake and canned th- it's so interesting so jello was something where you can make a jello salad you s- are still slicing up some veggies you're still mixing the jello you're still putting it all together so this was part of why jello was such a staple on the tables and for the next dozen or so years, new flavors are getting introduced and discontinued and pudding is invented, and that does great. And these new salads are being created all over the country. And coming into the 50s, women really started to take the jello mold super seriously. And in these Jell-O cookbooks, but also just regular cookbooks, because this was becoming such a mainstream dish, they would have like little tips and tricks for the conglomeration of ingredients that were suspended in jello and so you can find in recipes and cookbooks that these recipe creators were calling certain ingredients sinkers and certain ingredients floaters like what's going to fall to the bottom and what's going to stay suspended and what can you mix in to make it opaque just a tip that is mayonnaise or cottage cheese Anyway, so that's happening in the 50s. Also in the 50s, Tom Lehrer, one of our original comedy musicians, creates the Jello shot. So we've had the Jell-O shot around since like 1950. And he did this so that he could get around army enforced alcohol restrictions. So this was a really inventive time for a lot of people. I'll tell you what. Just like anything jello kind of had its heyday and that had to come to an end so in the 70s when health foods and things like that started to come more to the forefront of the american palate jello started to shift kind of towards the back because when people were talking about salads they didn't want a bunch of sugar in it and (laughs) So we started to become more familiar with like the salads that we know today, Caesar salad and a toss salad and, you know, vegetables that weren't encased in gelatin and sugar. And that was hard for Jell-O, but they are still kicking. You can find Jell-O in any grocery store that you go to now. And a lot of places like in the in the deep south and in Utah and stuff, people are still making these Jell-O salads. So it is absolutely not a dying art, it is just not as prevalent. And that's okay. Jellos stayed a part of the American table regardless of its seat with the popular kids, you know? Thank you guys so much for listening. I can't wait to take a bite out of history with you next week. I hope you have a great day. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. My money don't jiggle jiggle. It folds. I like the way you wiggle wiggle. For show. Sure.